all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Good morning to everyone. Hope everyone is having a great sunny day today. I know where I am at least. It's uh, clear skies. It's sort of nice to have that, particularly during the winter. Uh, Just feel a little bit warmer when we have that. This is the program, if you haven't tuned in before, where we answer your medical questions Uh, If you have questions about your medications or a new diagnosis or maybe it's some symptoms or or even preventive care, we are here to help you out today. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you can't send an email, you can always, if you can't call us, you can always send us an email. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Lots of stuff in the news. Uh, We're starting to see some COVID numbers that decrease a little bit from what we've seen in the past uh, couple of months now. We sort of predictably knew this would be a tough time in the winter, particularly when people come indoors and there's more contact. Uh, Still requires a lot of vigilance with people wearing masks to get a hold of this. There's always, you know, some other concerns that infectious disease experts are looking at, particularly new variants of the virus that seem to be, uh, these are normal mutations that you could expect in any virus over time. Uh, but they, uh, certainly there's, there's some concern that some of those might be more easily transmitted to individuals uh, or even cause, you know, some more severe symptoms. Thankfully, uh, most of these variants, uh, at least for right now are just more transmittable, but not causing any more serious uh, side effects than what we, uh, or complications than what we already are seeing with COVID. Uh, Good news is um, that vaccines tend to be making an impact, albeit a little bit slow, but that again is predictable as we have more and more people who receive those. Um, There's some great, uh, it's not the vaccines that are, accessible in the U.S. right now, but the Oxford vaccine that they're utilizing in um, in England has shown a decreased transmission rate, which is great news. Um, you know, still a little bit early to see if that's what we're going to have with both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines here in the U.S. 
for the other vaccines worldwide. We do have to think about what happens worldwide just because of the increased travel of different people and, uh, you know, uh, because of the way that uh, society works worldwide now. There's so much travel back and forth for work or uh, other, uh, you know, vacations and other things. You do have to keep that in mind that there's there's not really, unless you're an island, uh, completely cut off to the rest of the world, there's not a really good way to, to isolate from the rest of the world. So we do have to keep uh, our tabs on that. Uh, but it's nice to have some some uh, movement in the right direction, particularly uh, around the 1st of, of February. Let me encourage you, if you do have a question that you want us to, uh, to tackle today or maybe point you in the right direction, go ahead and give us a call. The first part of the hour tends to be more open for us to discuss those issues that you might have. I know a lot of people think, well, I don't want to be that first caller. I'm giving you permission right now to do that. Um, if you wait to the last part of the hour, sometimes we have to cut you off uh, just because of time or we aren't able to, uh, to even get to your call. Sometimes we do have a lot of people that call in. So go ahead and do that right now. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Uh, vaccinations are uh, certainly in the news and a lot of concerns with patients and access to those. The vast majority uh, of my personal patients and the people that uh, have been asking questions are, you know, part of the problem is just access to those as we haven't had uh, large enough access to meet all of the need up front. Again, this is a huge monumental task of trying to do that. A lot of vaccination sites are continuing to open up. Um, both statewide and nationally. I was just talking to uh, to Kevin and, uh, and our producer, Kevin Farrell, who, you know, we were talking about different sites that have opened up, and it really takes a lot of vigilance either on the website, uh, the Mississippi State Department of Health, or there's a UMC website, too, that uh, links to that same information. That's covidvaccine.umc.edu. Um, um, but uh, it, there's a couple of numbers to call. So just, just something to keep in mind about that. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, if I could jump in here for just a minute. Uh, as you just mentioned, I did get my vaccine shot yesterday. And again, there is a lot of trouble getting the appointment made, but I would like to say hats off to the Department of Health and uh, the members of the National Guard that worked the site that I went to in Meridian because it was efficiently run. I got in and out of there exactly how I was supposed to in terms of my appointment time. Uh, the people were extremely professional and very friendly. So uh, to me, it was a real positive experience. And I've gone ahead and scheduled uh, my second uh, shot as well. And that's a, a question a, a co-worker had this morning that I thought it was a good one. You know, we've heard that on the second dose, there are some folks that are getting kind of minor symptoms that are mimicking what you would get if you had COVID. Uh, the question is, are you contagious uh, during that time? Yeah, great question. Just because, as you said, some of the the ad, adverse uh, effects of the, of the vaccine can be pretty similar to COVID, um, particularly on that second vaccine is what we're seeing either with Pfizer or with Moderna. Um, so the, the way that the vaccine is, is put together and the science behind it precludes any kind of risk of actually getting COVID. You cannot get COVID from that vaccine. You cannot transmit COVID from that vaccine. So it doesn't make the entire virus. It's not even a killed portion of the virus. Uh, there are vaccines worldwide that are 
um, either a virus that's been weakened or combined with another virus. Um, and uh, it's not infectious, but it's, it's just a change virus. These two vaccines utilize RNA, so that's ribonucleic acid. Uh, so that is a genetic material, not DNA. Now, DNA is more permanent, but RNA is sort of the, the one-way traffic from DNA to the machinery in cells to make things. And in this case, it's making that protein that is located on the outside of the virus particle. And the reason why we want to do that and why it's advantageous to take advantage of your own individual cells to do that is you can make a whole lot of it and then your body's immune system can recognize that and, uh, and can say, okay, this looks like something that we need to make antibodies toward and it revs up the machinery. There are long-term effects, hopefully. We don't, and again, because of the way this was rolled out quickly um, to try to make an impact sooner, we don't really know a lot of those long-term questions because the vaccine hasn't been around that long. But we do know that you do make antibodies, that it does last at least eight to 10 months uh, afterwards, and it does seem to make an impact in both uh, decreasing the chances of you getting COVID or transmitting COVID. So, but you can't get it. Those, those symptoms that you get really is an indication of what the body's immune system would normally do. It makes all kinds of substances that can cause things like fever or muscle aches. And that's your body's immune system. It's not the virus that's doing that. That's a side effect of your individual immune system. Um, and, uh, it, you know, you can have that with any immune response, which is exactly why a lot of people are saying, you know, I feel like I had the flu for about 24 hours. Well, again, if you think about it, that's the same type of immune response that your body would have if you were getting, if you had actually gotten COVID, uh, the virus, or if you had contracted the flu, uh, or a lot of other viruses for that matter. So that's the reason behind it. Uh, but you can't get that. I know a lot of people too, they'll say, hey, I got the flu for my flu shot. Well, you didn't. You had an immune response that was similar to what you would have if you had gotten the flu, but you can't get the flu anymore, at least from a flu vaccine. So excellent question, Kevin. We get that a lot. All right. Uh, we've got uh, Diana who's on the road. Good morning, Diana. Thank you for calling. Yes. Hi, it's Diana. Um, my question is basically, if I can phrase it properly, um, that I had um, twin boys in 1996 that were born extreme prematurity at 24 and a half weeks. And they um, were on ventilators for about five weeks and they um, were born um, un about one pound, 10 and a half ounces. And they survived through all that and they're currently 24 years old. And my question is um, that, are they um, at more increased risk um, for respiratory illnesses or something like the COVID-19 and, and maybe should be considered to be getting the vaccine. Um, they, uh, when they were babies, they were given the Respigam that first year um, to help prevent um, RSV for them since they're extreme high risk born under two pounds. And if I'm wondering if there are any studies or any information now is that they're in their young adult age. They, they are not, have not generally over the years displayed symptoms of respiratory problems. Um, one did have RSV actually when he was three years old though, and made it through just by given um, oxygen mask only. Um, he was having extreme 
on DSATs and, and so he's hospitalized for that. So it's kind of curious yeah. where they and they're, they're 24 now. Yeah, Diana, thank you for that question. It's that's that brings up important points about what groups are more at risk because we want to target those groups first before we release it to the entire population. And eventually, I think we'll get there to where we're uh, offering this at least down to the age 18, probably down to 16, depending on which vaccine you're looking at. So uh, because lung effects um, are a common uh, complication of of COVID, it doesn't have to be the only one, uh, but uh, individuals that have chronic lung disease, that have asthma, uh, they may have cystic fibrosis, or they may have chronic bronchitis at whatever mm -hmm. age, theoretically, those individuals are gonna be more at risk. We don't have a lot right. of data in the younger group, and you know, age 24 would be still in that younger group, where <clears throat> even if you have a chronic lung disease, is that a risk? So I, say, I would mm -hmm. say, tentatively, theoretically, yes. Now, one thing that sort of, if they haven't had problems since they were really young, what we know about prematurity and chronic lung disease, prematurity is a risk factor for getting things like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus that you mentioned, and we have a prophylactic treatment to, to help prevent that. So uh, you mentioned Respergam that we give to uh, younger individuals who were born prematurely or have chronic lung disease. We don't do that forever. That's just in the first uh, couple of years or, or depending on back then, it was probably 18 months, I'm guessing, uh, of their, you know, the, the first 18 months of life. Because after that, RSV is not yeah. a big player. Now, COVID's not like that for whatever reasons. And we think some of this has to do with the ACE receptors that uh, where COVID works. But as you probably know, it, it's sort of counterintuitive. A, a virus like COVID, uh, normally the coronaviruses would affect the very young, the very old. Uh, this one doesn't do much for the young. The, although young people can contract it and they can spread it, they don't have, you know, they don't have the more serious symptoms. As a general rule, I know there's a lot, there's a, a few individuals, unfortunately, that have died or had complications. So back to, you know, sort of answering your question, I don't think they would be at a, a high risk. There is some residual theoretical risk, but at this point, their lungs should have matured so that they're probably okay. Um, but under our current recommendations for the state, if you have any kind of chronic medical condition, ages 18 to 65, currently that's the one of the groups that they could get them. I see. So so it's more so, so so since they're not they haven't recent years displayed any lung problems as far as you know respiratory issues that they really wouldn't necessarily be considered chronically um, having lung problems. Is that right. What right. you're saying? So therefore, yeah. it's possible they may not be that high risk. Whereas if they yeah, I, and I don't, and I would I would say they they're. they're probably not at a higher risk. They may be at some smaller risk, you know, uh, than the, another individual, but it, it is such a, uh -huh. it's a small okay. risk. It's probably so, not that, you know, sure. consequential. Okay. So, if, so if a ventilator um, had damaged their lungs um, from being on it for that five or six weeks back when they were babies, it, they would probably be having some symptoms of lung problems out of, you know, over the years. Is that possible? Right, right. Maybe yeah, and we, and we do have yeah, individuals that, that do that over time, you know, that they'll have continued either an oxygen requirement or they'll get multiple yeah. infections. But if they haven't okay. had any problems since when they were younger, they're not 
they shouldn't be at any increased risk. Right. Okay. Well, I just praise God that God took care of them and they're alive, and and I'm very very thankful. So, but yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Whitty this morning answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. Uh, maybe it's a new medication. Maybe it's something in a family member that you're just interested in or need more information on. Any kind of topic is fair game today. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Randy and Olive Branch. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah, like, What's your question today? Well, um, I've had COVID since, uh, or I've had COVID back in uh, December, uh, around December 16th, 17th uh, last year, and um, I'm still suffering from virus, and I just... Uh, my, I guess one of my main questions would be, is there any anything that they've um, realized that could possibly help you cope with some of the symptoms, uh, such as like floatiness, uh, you know, feeling, feeling out of sorts and uh, having like muscle pain every so often in your chest from one side to the other? Yeah, Randy, that's a great question. I didn't care. You know, some of those symptoms are, are common. Uh, a lot of people are terming uh, the terminology that's emerging. It's not too fancy. It's called long COVID. Um, in other words, most people who have symptoms, they're going to see a decrease in those symptoms anywhere from 10 to 14 days after they started. Um, but there are some residual symptoms, particularly the fatigue that's more common and can last sometimes months afterwards. The side effects that you, uh, the symptoms that you uh, described of having muscle aches and pains or a fogginess in the way that you're thinking, that the problem with this is everybody's a little bit different. And the way that the inflammatory response that is elicited in some people is quite dramatic to the point where it can damage other tissues. In other words, it's almost like a friendly fire. If you were sending a bunch of troops into uh, a war zone, and the enemy is there and you're trying to, you know, instead of strategically shooting the other people, this is sort of graphic, I guess, way of thinking about this, but instead of shooting individuals uh, with a rifle, you just exploded a bomb in the middle of everything. And unfortunately, that does damage to the good tissue that's there. 
Um, and so you can find this in the lung tissue. You can find it where we're learning more about the brain and how it's affected. And um, we just don't have a whole lot of data to suggest what kind of things we could do on the back end of it to try to make that either go away or at least make it better. Now, so that being said, there's a lot of other things that we know that if you control while that happens, you can have less side effects. So if you do have other medical problems, things like hypertension, diabetes, good control during that time period, both in that active phase when you're, you're, you're having that initial infection and then continually continuing that good uh, tight care of those medical problems afterwards. One other thing to point out is in some individuals, a lot of the organ damage is due to an increase in some of the clotting factors. So it, it COVID in some individuals, and there's actually some, we know a whole lot more about uh, some criteria that if certain things in your blood, when you, and this is mainly for people who were admitted to the hospital, uh, if, if there are certain factors like a D-dimer, which is a breakdown product of, of clotting, of clots in the body, if it's high enough, then that you probably need an anticoagulant. You need a blood thinner during that hospital stay to try to prevent that. If you don't, then you can have blood clots in your kidneys and your lungs and other places. So, and it's not like a big blood clot. It's like a bunch of little blood, blood clots all over the place. So it's, we know a little bit more about it on the front end, the back end, we still don't know, okay, for people who have continued problems, how can we address that? But it is known. And those symptoms that you mentioned unfortunately for some people are common. The other thing we don't know is where do we send patients uh, who have these? And it really depends on what the symptoms are. So if you're having some of these symptoms, it might be, you know, for the sort of fogginess of thought, it might be advantageous to seek out a neurologist um, because that would be in their realm of, of following you for that. And they may want to do some further tests just to see if there's anything else that might be causing that. The muscle aches and pains, uh, you know, an allergist or a rheumatologist might be somebody to see. Um, I would probably give it, you know, time period when you said you had it at least another month or two. And certainly you could take over the counter things like ibuprofen, Tylenol for the muscle aches and pains. But there's just not a whole lot of data yet. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how do we treat people who have these sorts of side effects long term. Yeah, because uh, my mom is uh she she had gotten it about the same exact time, and I'm assuming that you know we we I gave it to her. Um, she's still uh, she's feeling. I mean she she went through one bad bout of probably maybe a couple of days. Uh, she completely lost her taste and smell, which of course I did too at the time. Uh, but mine has since returned, and hers has not. So it's it's crazy how it reacts to different people, what it does to different people, and plus it's kind of level. Uh, increased a uh, level of anxiety in me, which I'm not used to. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and it, it can be pretty handicapping to, you know, it, younger people. Um, you really have to sort of take every case a, a little bit different uh, for some of the side effects. And even like the smell and taste, you know, that's variable with some individuals don't have that symptom at all. It is a common one. Um, most people that gets better, but for some it doesn't. It's a permanent, you know, change. And that, it sounds like it's not that bad, but if you can't taste and you can't smell, it changes dramatically 
uh, how you eat and how you interact with different things. Some people have had hyperacuity to certain foods or taste. So it's not just a loss of smell, it's a change such that it tastes terrible. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting I've from the standpoint that. of, how, you know, the bearability of, of it, but it's, it's incredibly difficult for some patients. So you really just have to sort of wait and see. And if things persist or they get worse, even, I, you know, I, that would be the, the people I would reach out to, uh, you know, whether you need a, a referral or you could directly see them if, for those side effects. But you're still on the time period where, you know, up to like 90 to 120 days, you can see some of those side effects uh, go away. Great. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Randy. We appreciate your call. Let's go to Thomas, who's on the road. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I sure. uh, recently just started a, uh, a new prescription and have some severe side effects that I was trying to figure out um, what I could do about it. I have trouble uh, falling asleep. I'm tired at night, but when I lay down, I just never seem to fall asleep. I just didn't want to mix a bunch of different drugs together and whatnot and just kind of see some kind of natural product I could take or kind of what you would recommend. Yeah, to, and you're talking about sleep initiation, right? It's hard to get to sleep? Correct, correct. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know, sleep. We all need sleep, and we need adequate sleep. So um, it, it's not just, you know, some people can sleep 8 to 10 hours, but it's not good quality sleep. But sleep initiation is probably one of the more common things, and you just can't get to sleep. And there's lots of different reasons for that. The first thing would be what we call sleep hygiene, which is the things that you do before you go to sleep that could keep you up. Common things like caffeine. If you drink a lot of caffeine during the day, even for some people are very sensitive. And if they drink caffeine in the morning, <clears throat> it'll keep them up at night. Most of the time, though, you know, after 3 p.m., probably don't want to be doing that. Um, excessive amounts of fluids at night can certainly, um, that can, you know, before you go to bed, that can keep you up. And then having the environment that you sleep in conducive to going to sleep. So uh, not being on your phone or your iPad, we know that the light, not just the wavelength of it, but actually have that stimulation to your brain because your brain utilizes light input to sort of regulate sleep. We're sort of programmed that when it gets dark, we get sleepy. When it's light, we wake up. Uh, there are receptors in the back of your eye and your retina that are connected directly to the centers in the brain that control that. Um, so doing all those things and making sure you don't have distractions and that kind of stuff before you go to bed, not getting, um, um, you know, in, a lot of physical uh, activity. If you're going out and running or, do, or working out right before sleep, sometimes that can activate the brain too. So once you've done all of that, uh, if you, as best you can, sort of natural things um, that you can try. Melatonin is a natural hormone that the body uses, the brain uses to regulate sleep and wake cycles. So it's been studied for a lot of different things, including that initiation of sleep. It works best in people that have shift work or they're, they're traveling across time zones uh, to help reset the body. You take it about 30 minutes before you want to go to sleep. It's really safe, doesn't really have any side effects of you can take anywhere from three milligrams to 10 milligrams of it. Really doesn't, after 10 milligrams, melatonin is not going to do too much. Um, but some people, you know, have great, uh, great responses to, to anything around three milligrams. Instantly, you can give this to adolescents and children. So totally safe to give to them. Um, and that'll help that with that sleep initiation. 
if you're waking up in the middle of the night, it's not as good. And you mentioned some medications, you know, medications for sleep, almost all of them are going to have at least some side effects. Um, things like excessive sleepiness when you wake up in the morning or um, they can uh, you know, they can have some other side effects right around the time that you take them. Vivid dreams for things like uh, zolpidem, which is Ambien. That's one that's that's uh, been uh, or, or differences in the way that you think. Um, and if you can use sometimes you can use those intermittently to help initiate sleep for like three or four days. And then you can go to something like melatonin. But that would be the stepwise approach that I would do. If it gets much beyond that, then a sleep specialist would be somebody that you would see. Uh, and I should mention, too, there's a lot of other conditions that go along with not getting good sleep. Things like anxiety, depression, um, other sleep disorders that I mentioned. So all those things have to be taken into account and sort of checked off the list to make sure that's not what's going on. So that, that would be the way that I would... Uh, that I would uh, approach it. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking my call. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions or comments that you might have about any healthcare issue that uh, you might be wondering about. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always send us an email. We do respond individually to those and uh, sometimes share those if we think that it's pertinent to a larger uh, audience. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.com. Org. You can also access um, archive programs on our website, mpbonline.org. Just search for Southern Remedy. We try to get those up within about a day or so. Um, and uh, you realize that a lot of people may not can uh, tune really in for the entire conversation that we may have uh, on a program. And you may want to uh, go back and listen to the, the entire program. So check that out on our website, mpbonline.org. Let's go to Homer in Clarksdale. Good morning, Homer. Hey, how you doing, doctor? Good. Thanks for calling. Uh, the, I, I've held about with that. I'm in my 60s. Um, it lasted for about three days, three to four days severely. Uh, never did have to go on a ventilator or go into the hospital or anything like that because at that time they were saying stay away from the hospital. Um but it, I got over it. I did not understand how my sense of smell and taste tied in with how I enjoyed food. Uh, I ate, but I did not. I ate because I knew I needed to eat, not so much that I, I mean, there were things that I enjoyed eating. But my question is, and this stuff is so new, and there's so much to be found out about it, uh, I've looked at some of the programs, a long-range COVID. It's just amazing what is happening to people. But my question is, is it any information on 
the longevity and the severity of of you having the symptoms linked with the long range or how fast it actually clears up or how it actually affects your your body down the road yeah homer that that's uh that's a great question i am you know sorry that to hear that happen to you and you're exactly right i mean people think well taste and smell it's not that big a deal but i've seen patients that lost a lot of weight um that were pretty miserable about eating you know and we're in the south let's let's be honest like our food is our culture um so it's it's pretty devastating even if that's the only symptom um you know back to your question about you know is the severity of it sort of linked if you if when you have the active infection when you first get get covid um if your symptoms are are more pronounced there is much more of a risk of having long-term side effects if you don't really have okay. many side of you know if you don't really have many side effects up front like some people say well i just have a little cold or maybe fever and a cough or you know old elder patients sometimes they'll have just lower gi problems like diarrhea or abdominal cramping loss of appetite yeah I um, yeah yeah i mean those are common things but the if you don't have a lot of those more serious symptoms up front it's unlikely that you're going to have more long-term effects now the more serious infection you had particularly if you had to go in the hospital on the ventilator those kinds of things kidney damage uh that that's all puts you at risk for having more long-term effects but there's a whole lot of uncertainty you know particularly in groups uh, of patients like if you have autoimmune diseases already, if you have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, or you have uh, some of the other autoimmune um, um, arthritis or, or other autoimmune processes, what happens then? Because your immune system really is working a little bit differently, or you may be on medications that suppress parts of the immune system. It's interesting that those targeted um, medications that are used to sort of suppress the immune system and autoimmune diseases. There's a lot of research on those being used for COVID. Um, uh, so, but we just don't know. We just don't know about that. Thankfully, there's a lot of studies out there that are looking at that. Um, I know just at our own institution, there's been uh, more than 20 uh, plus trials of either medications or different therapies or uh, certainly in looking at our own database here at, at uh, UMMC to try to figure out, you know, what are some of those commonalities and how can we predict it and how can we treat it? Um, and, and I would encourage anybody, uh, you included Homer, if you, if you are having those kinds of things, you, you may get some benefit from enrolling in some of those trials from, from time to time. Uh, but certainly the more we have people sort of report those kinds of things, just like the vaccine, when I got my vaccine, which was in late December, early January, um, I enrolled in what's called the VSAFE program, which is a uh, online program where they're continually uh, gathering more data on symptoms and side effects uh, for the vaccine. So I got a text once a day, went to a website. I had to answer some questions, took less than a minute to do. I still get that. Uh, and my second dose was on the 8th of January. Uh, so I've got to check in now once a month for, I think it's six months, but it may be longer than that. Well, that helps. I mean, that helps us know more about this. 
um, as we move on. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot of answers for you for you there, um, Homer. But it's you know certainly um, it, the the more serious that that first infection was, the more likely you are to have long term side effects. Uh, not everybody has that. I mean, some people clear up and they don't have any more problems, but we just don't know enough about this yet to predict who's going to have it and who doesn't. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, I really, I really appreciate your caring attitude uh, in even just handling people on the radio. It's it, you, you have a good humanitarian medical attitude about seeming to take care, want to take care of people. Well, thank you, Homer. I, I appreciate that. It's in my training. I was taught um, that when you approach every patient, uh, you think about how would you want to be treated, and how would you want your own family member to be treated. And exactly. uh, and honestly, yeah, I mean that's the way. It's hard. It is tough. You know, you, certainly doctors and other healthcare professionals. You, we get tired. We get frustrated just the same way everybody else does sometimes about either that interaction or other things going on. But as you said, it's important to keep that in the back of your mind that everybody uh, is a person that needs that, that attention and, uh, and listening to me. That's, that's one of the most important things is to listen to somebody and try to, to listen, not to just get the right answer, but listen to understand. That is great. That, that is, that is the attitude I've been in business for a long time. When people come to me needing work done, that's the attitude. The attitude is, what can I do with my knowledge to help you? So, right, and, exactly. And, and I, I stand on that. You know, it's you always do the right thing. Yep, that's it. That's it. I had a, most of the time. I had, a, I had a medical teacher of mine that that was sort of what he was known for saying. He said, do the right thing. may not know in that moment what the right thing is, but just do the right thing. Exactly. Good. All right, Homer. I enjoy talking to you. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions or taking your comments about any kind of health care issue that you might have. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 Six seven two seven four six four. If you don't get a chance to call in today or at any other time, just send us an email. You don't have to do that while we're on the air. Send it to uh, remedy at mpbonline.org. 
Let's go to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a question. I heard a doctor on DirecTV who was taking calls, and a man called in and said as soon as he got his first vaccine shot that he developed shingles, and he was associating that vaccine with the shingles, and the doctor said that was not – he didn't think that was had any correlation. What do you think? And also, what do you, why do you think – how does that virus affect your sense of taste and smell? What part of your brain is it affecting and why? Yeah, great great questions there, Sue. So um, when you get any kind of either a medication or a vaccine, um, certainly there can be things that happen um, from getting that, right? So that's why there's tracking for this. That's why there's symptoms that you can have. But then there's also times where you can just coincidentally have something else that pops up. So theoretically, there's nothing that should necessarily tie together getting the COVID vaccine with getting shingles. Now, shingles, that's not, uh, you know, that's a virus. It's the chickenpox virus that you get when you're younger and then sort of hangs out in your body for decades until your immune system goes down for whatever reason. So it doesn't make sense if you're ramping up the immune system with a vaccine, you're saying, hey, we want the immune system to work and, and target this what we're giving it. Um, to me, that's not going to put you at risk for getting something else. And it's not overloading the system. A lot of people say, well, we're overloading it. Well, not really, because we're every day we're exposed to all kinds of different things with our immune system. But um, it may have been something that just happened. But we can't say that with certainty. It's not a cause and effect type thing. And you use the word association. That's one that we use medically to say, well, there was an associated um, finding of getting shingles at about the same time. But it's not a, it's not to say that the vaccine caused that. It's just that's what happened. Uh, those are reportable things, though, that we track over time. So it is important to do that. And then your your second, um, you know, your second question about smell so it's interesting, like the, the neurons, the nerve cells for smell uh, and taste, uh, particularly smell, those are like sort of raw neurons that are up in the top of the nasal plate and the cribriform pl plate that are really short distance from the brain. And um, they can be damaged by a lot of things. They can be, if you think about it, they get damaged every time you have a cold or if you have allergies, you can lose that sense of uh, smell. And uh, But they really think it has to do with the way that the virus attaches itself to certain receptors and that those particular cells are higher in those receptors. Um, you would think it would be something easy to figure that out, but it actually is fairly complicated. But that's the, the common knowledge, at least right now, um, about why that's affected more is because those are the particular types of cells that have those receptors in a little bit more frequency. Same kind of thing with those lower GI side effects. Um, the virus receptors that it, that it latches onto in the cells in the GI tract, uh, it's a little bit higher density there. So uh, thank you, Sue. That's, that's great questions that you had. We're going to uh, squeeze in one more call here. Ruth from Flora. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, and thank you for your thank service. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, What's your my, <clears throat> yes, my question is about the vaccine priority. I noticed that obesity is on the list of conditions that qualify a person to get the vaccine. And uh, I'm wondering if if two uh, people have the same height and the same weight, uh, but one is age 18 and one 
is in their 70s, is not the elderly one more at risk? And the same thing goes for, say, a condition like asthma. If they're on two patients are on the same treatment, uh, you know, they have the same uh, level of asthma, is not still the the elderly one more at risk? And Dr. Osterholm and others say that the elderly should be vac- vaccinated first, but now the elderly, you know, there's not enough vaccine, and the elderly are competing with, you know, teenagers now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's are good points. Um, so you're exactly right. Now, what we know, particularly with COVID, now not, not with other things necessarily, but we know uh, the older you are, irregardless of other medical problems, that is the higher, higher risk group. Uh, the, the biggest risk factor for having complications from COVID is age, particularly over 70. Um, so that's why that group was opened up along with healthcare professionals, because we wanted to be sure that, you know, they wanted to be sure that, that we could take care of patients. Um, and I totally get that. But the first group in most states, the way that this was set up, it wasn't a national, you know, um, CDC recommendation, although those were, were there, but they sort of deferred to individual states. The elderly, those above age 65 or 70, depending on the state, were targeted first. And then as we had more vaccine, uh, they opened it up, you know, with those lower age groups. But you're right. Other states, if you look around, do not match up necessarily with what Mississippi has. So that's been decisions that have been at the state level. So, in, in, you know, and if you compare other states, um, teachers, uh, certainly teachers have been uh, at risk. Uh, they have health care problems, too. Uh, and uh, they're, although children aren't as affected, we have to think about the people taking care of those children on a day-to-day basis and interacting with them. Uh, and in other states, teachers have been a little bit higher up on the priority list than when, in, you know, if you compare it to our state. So, but you always have to balance it out with supply and demand. We want to get the vaccine out. We want to get, you know, you can protect el- the elderly if the people around them get the vaccine. That is, you know, sort of by definition, herd immunity. Um, but you'd, you'd want to get it to that individual who's most at risk first. So, and I, you know, this is a difficult decision that people making these decisions in states, local health departments and health officials and government officials. It is a difficult thing. Even in our own institution, it's been difficult as we had vaccine, how do we get that to different groups of people and in what order? Uh, so the, the, the physicians and healthcare workers who were directly interacting with COVID patients were offered the vaccine first at our own institution. And then we sort of stepped down from there. Uh, you know, what, what about younger individuals, medical students and other uh, clinical uh, students that are interacting with patients? So just sort of depends. And it's always, we wish we had enough, we could just give to everybody. That'd be great, but we just don't. So you have to sort of prioritize that. And that's not something that in the U.S. we've been used to. We've had access to a lot of things. Um, um, you know, so that's that's sort of the thought process there. Um, hey, one last thing uh, really quick. If you want to help right now, one good way to help is with elderly uh, people who would qualify for the vaccine right now, A lot of them might have a hard time accessing that. If you got good internet skills or you can man a phone, you can help them out. So reach out to your neighbors, to people who are elderly and may not be able to navigate that system very well. 
help them get signed up for a vaccine. That's one good way you can do that uh, today. We need to pull together and help other people in those kind of ways. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org radio or by using your favorite podcasting app.